This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Some of the stories Jay and I look at on This Week in FCPA, episode 277 include... Will corruption forestall climate change? Monica Guy explores in the FCPA blog. Driving culture through sustainability. Linda Ludi in Risk and Compliance Matters. Stop hat, little problems from becoming big ones. Mike Volkoff in Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. More on effective compliance. Michael Julian in the FCPA blog. How is success defined in ABC Compliance? Matthew Stevenson in Global Anti-Corruption blog. Revisiting your whistleblower program, Deba Voice Plimpton Lawyers in Compliance and Enforcement. What is the role of the Board of Directors in ESG? Van Randy Vi Morrison and Jurgita Ashley in the Harvard Law Forum on Corporate Governance. Disclosing Cybersecurity Issues, Matt Kelly in Radical Compliance. Mashrec Bank Fine $100 million by the New York State DFS, Jacqueline Jagger in Compliance Week. And tailoring your design thinking program that fits for you. Karsten Tams in LinkedIn. New podcast, events, and a great new book. All of this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself, for This Week in FCPA, episode 277 to the week ending, November 12, 2021, the Immunized Not Vaccinated Edition. As we find out about the fine uh, assessed to Aaron Rodgers for lying to the NFL and not being vaccinated, as he claimed, was less than a player who had his shirt tail untucked. Jay and I are back to take up some of the week's other top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, what say you? I say, uh, let's just jump right into this and see what's in our top 10. Um, first off, Tom, will corruption forestall climate change? Yeah, I've begin to, beginning to see more and more of these type articles, and I think it's really prescient uh, for Monica Guy to post this in the FCPA blog, and it really brings up a pretty big question on is climate change going to be uh, addressed from the top, where governments try to step in, uh, both governments from the developed world uh, to helping less developed governments or something else, and utilize money to um, uh, really help fight climate change? And the problem is, if large amounts of money are directed either through the World Bank or the IMF or you know, direct loans or other funding from uh, Western governments to governments which have big corruption problems, you could see a um, basically stealing money from climate and clean energy projects, as Monica lays out. Of course, uh, the uh, theft of money is not simply the other, the only way. Uh, there can be a lot of uh, weakening of weakening of laws. Uh, bribes, kickbacks, and other forms of corruptions 
can negatively influence uh, policy decisions and even down to the tactical level of individual uh, refineries or other high carbon producing uh, facilities. Certainly, uh, the corruption that we've seen in many countries, which is endemic corruption, destroys trust and hinders humanitarian actions. So what can we do? And really, this, I think, speaks to what President Biden foresaw last uh, spring when he announced his national security directive and putting corruption on on, uh, a national security footing so that uh, people understand this is a real uh, uh, national security issue and climate issue, and we need to really try to root out corruption at all levels. And um, unfortunately, carbon emissions don't stay in one corrupt country. They will, of course, migrate with the winds. And so it's going to be hard to sustain a um, concerted effort if uh, basically the funding is being stolen uh, by the usual suspects. Uh, Jay, that really leads into the next article that caught our collective eye, which was um, driving culture through sustainability. So is there a way that an ESG concept like sustainability can help improve your corporate culture? Yeah, I think that's a great segue, Tom. Uh, This comes to us from the Navex Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog, and it's by Linda Luddy, and it's purpose-driven culture through sustainability. As Tom said, many companies today are reevaluating their connection between purpose and profit. A growing cohort of investors and business leaders now recognized in many cases that the two go hand in hand. Traditionally, companies would rely on charitable contributions and timely social media campaigns to promote equity and inclusivity. Now, truly purpose-driven organizations are embedding purpose-driven values across their organizations. Environmental, social, and government incentives initiatives, more commonly referred to as ESG, have become tenants of what being a purpose-driven organization is all about. In the article, uh, Linda takes a look at a company called Geldwend, which is a leading global manufacturer of building products, and it's committed to having a purpose-driven culture and sustainability. Last year, the company issued their inaugural ESG report, and the CEO, Gary Michelle, said, we delivered our first ESG report. They're really the first opportunity for us to take a cohesive look at all the elements of ESG and see how they relate to our stakeholders and benchmark against other companies. For Geldwen, sustainability is core to their business, with stakeholders throughout the organization advocating for specific areas of ESG. ESG is not just one task or focus area, it's a company-wide strategy. A cross-functional global team was very interested in defining ESG areas of focus for the company. A lot of people focus on sustainability and what that means for a company and its products. In our case, energy efficiency is something that they've worked for and towards over a long period of time. We think it's about social areas, about inclusion, for example, bringing diversity into the company and the advantage of having employee resource groups within. We do quite a bit in the communities we serve to be good corporate citizens, and we're also involved in things that make our communities better. 
Jeldwen conducted a materiality assessment in over 18 months, refined their framework focusing on sustainable energy efficient products, supporting a circular economy, sustainable supply chain, and ensuring growth. ESG is, a critical, is critical to their long-term shareholder return, and they see time and again how important it is for long-term viability of enterprises. Attracting talent and giving back. Being driven by purpose has also been a boon for the company's talent strategy. For more recent graduates, the ESG focus has been a large attractor. We have made significant pushes in recruiting diverse candidates at early stages, including in the early career rotation program. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, giving back to the community has been a priority. The company's people love to be involved. They love to be hands-on. It's not just about giving money, but it's about giving time and effort. So gaining buy-in, where does one start? If your organization does not have a comprehensive ESG strategy, it may be daunting to think of where to start. But between upcoming regulations and investor and public interest, it's critical to prioritize efforts. The most important thing is to understand deeply your company's strategy from business perspective and not allow yourself to be siloed out. The reason we can be successful in ESG or broader and outside traditional legal or compliance world is if we are viewed as true business partners. And the way you can be viewed as a true business partner is to understand businesses deeply. In this company's case, with ESG, the way in which they define it is not a compliance function, it's a business strategy. Compliance's role within ESG is to ensure transparency and transparency and accountability. So embedding ESG into your culture, it's not an easy feat, and there's no singular playbook because of the unique organizational structures, priorities, and challenges. But an increased focus from regulators and the public demonstration that the importance of making meaningful efforts ensue. ESG is a journey, not a destination, and learning from organizations with successful ESG programs and ongoing commitments will help pave the way for better practices for the long term. Tom, what's on Mike Volkov's mind this week? Well, Jay, Mike writes about a case involving uh, fraud against Rockwell Automation, and it reminds us that uh, small problems can become very large ones if you don't pay attention or you don't have the basic controls in place. And the the fraud scheme here was, uh, I, I want to say, fairly pedestrian, but it cost or the fraudsters were able to scam $17 million from Rockwell Automation through it. And what they did was they set up, uh, uh, or rather, uh, they had a former colleague set up a software company and then they steered business his way, and he kicked back the money to uh, the uh, Rockwell employees so that they basically uh, stole from the company through inflated um, invoices or false invoices. And it really shows, Jay, that uh, the most basic conflict of interest inquiries must be um, given at a company and literally on an annual basis. And you have to disclose if you have uh, any work with uh, former colleagues. You have to disclose if you have uh, created corporations, uh, which uh, the two fraudsters here uh, created a shell corporation to accept the proceeds of the kickbacks. And uh, those basic um, compliance controls apparently were not uh, put in place. Now, as with most fraudsters, 
or fraud schemes, I should say. The fraud was uncovered internally, and uh, a Rockwell employee reported internally that, quote, something funny, end quote, was occurring between um, the employees, the Rockwell fraud, fraudster Rockwell employees, and this new software development company. That resulted in an internal investigation and uh, termination of the two or resignation of the two Rockwell Automation employees um, on the same day. So I think that part of the system worked. But if they, Rockwell Automation had had a more robust system uh, early on, uh, they may have caught this before the fraudsters were able to uh, purloin some $17 million uh, through, the fra- through their uh, business with their friend uh, back to them as kickback. So I think a good lesson, Jay, on some of the basic controls you have to have in place, and you've got to enforce those controls, you, uh, and you've got to, to run routine checks. So um, good, uh, good reminder how a little problem can uh, become a big one. Jay, we had uh, some ongoing debate in the FCPA blog on uh, Dick Casson's post from last week on effective compliance. What did Mike Julian have to say uh, in his blog post? Thanks. So uh, Mike read the recent FCPA blog post that Tom spoke about last week, and it was entitled, Can We Really Measure Compliance? And uh, as Tom said, Dick Casson touched on one of the essential areas the compliance community needs to work together to improve our approach. According to Michael, we need to assess how our programs are progressing and then be able to share that data with various stakeholders. Michael agrees that the guidance from various regulators does not provide much detail, but being able to measure the performance of a compliance program effectively and objectively is critical to the future of our profession. Michael is an enthusiastic supporter of the ISO 37001 standard and feels it provides a robust framework of assessing the performance of your compliance program. It all starts with the important step of identifying goals that the compliance program seeks to achieve. In this framework, the objectives of the compliance program need to be set after an in-depth interview of the organization's, or rather an in-depth review of the organization's risk profile. Each objective needs to have an action plan to address and mitigate risk, and each action plan needs performance indicators that allow the compliance team to pilot the program and communicate its performance. Let's take Richard's example of training. Following the number of employees who have been trained one way to, is one way to measure compliance. Still, it is true that an indicator of the number of people trained does not show whether participants learned anything or that will impact any future behavior. So how do we quantify this second aspect, the performance of our training initiatives? One solution which comes from our HR colleagues is to implement cold assessments, which consist of contacting employees at a given interview, and after they have completed training, say six months, for example, and having them complete a short quiz to see if they've integrated these concepts. It's also important to be a bit creative and take a holistic approach to compliance. Another possibility is to review cases that have been reported through the company's hotline and see if the reporter became aware of compliance issue as a result of training. Finally, if the organization has an internal audit team, this is an important source of performance data for the compliance function. For example, let's say that gift gift giving is one of the main sources of corruption risk for your company, and a gift approval and reporting tool is in place. 
In this example, the company could work with the internal audit team to review employee expense reports and to verify what percentage of identified gift expenditures followed the company policy. So does this mean that no corrupt activity has taken place? Well, not really, but twin indicators of one, having good data on who's being trained, the deployment indicator, and two, the objective data available that shows employees are following the rules, the performance indicator, these two measures taken together tend to show the compliance program is effective and performing well. We cannot see into the hearts and minds of our employees, but we can identify areas of risk and then put into place processes to help colleagues in the organization mitigate them as much as possible and to use data at our disposal to gauge performance. Turning back to where we started, Michael thinks Dick Casson has raised a valid and important point. We in the compliance community now need to continue this critical discussion to share best practices and adopt a common standard benchmark for measuring our compliance programs. Tom, what is new in ABC compliance? Well, Jay, um, the uh, you're a pretty practical guy. You went to business school, and you know you're really not don't have an academic bend. But I grew up as a professor's kid, so I'm used to seeing these uh, very lengthy academic debates. And we've actually had one gone, going on over the past several weeks over at the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And it's uh, really trying to define and then measure anti-corruption success. And this week, Matthew Stevenson, and he has participated uh, in these debates, um, talked about uh, or had some reflections on it, and he uh, really lays out general outlines of the positions. One is that on a very macro level, it's difficult to see uh, if there's really any sustained progress in anti-corruption uh, from the 30,000-foot level because the world still seems to be mired in it with 3,000, excuse me, $3 trillion a year lost to the international scourge of bribery and corruption. Uh, if you couple that, however, or not couple, but contrast that rather with the uh, down to a more tactical level, um, are there good government reforms that occur are occurring? Are there deals that are not getting done uh, because of uh, anti-corruption compliance programs? Uh, down at the on the ground level, do we see more um, uh, actual success of anti-corruption? Uh, compliance programs. Obviously, that's something that Michael Julian and Dick Casson really talked about as well. And he, he sums up with a few concluding thoughts. And um, the first is that there's really no one understanding of success. And unfortunately, like the current political debate, many of the academics in this, academicians, are really talking across each other. And um, this really leads to what is the model for a measurable incremental progress uh, in the fight against anti-corruption. Is it some type of systemic long-term approach? Is it a dramatic approach? Is it uh, a, ta a tactical, much smaller approach? Uh, he does uh, believe that both perspectives have something useful to offer, but that we need to try to meld them. And in his fourth point, he really t takes it back. And, and I read all of these debates, uh, Jay, and they literally um, were around 
What's the definition of success? What's the definition of effectiveness? And they really couldn't come up with one definition uh, for any of that. And until we can have a definition, it's probably going to be hard to agree on a measure. So um, for those interested in academic debates, uh, this was a pretty interesting one. For those perhaps a little more grounded in the practical realities of things, I think the debate, uh, or at least a dialogue between Dick Casson and Michael Julian uh, was equally important and equally valid uh, to have. So I think a lot of people are thinking about this, and uh, they're going to continue to do so. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and they'll be right back with more on This Week in FCPA. What's up in the whistleblower world, Jay? Well, uh, we've got an article that comes to us from the NYU um, Compliance and Enforcement blog, and it's from four attorneys at Deba Voice, Ivy Gesser, Anna Gressel, Corey Goldstein, and Michael Pizzi. And it's entitled Cybersecurity and AI Whistleblowers, Unique Challenges and Strategies for Reducing Risks. Several recent developments have caused companies to review their whistleblower policies and procedures, especially in the areas of cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. First, on October 28, 2021, New York State amended its labor law to dramatically increase whistleblower protections. Second, the SEC announced that it has surpassed $1 billion with a B in awards to whistleblowers, including a recent payment of $110 million as the SEC continues to escalate its cyber and data management enforcement, regulators increase their scrutiny over AI, we can expect whistleblower actions in these areas to become more common. Third, on October 6th of this year, the USDOJ launched its Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative, which aims to use the False Claims Act to bring actions against companies that offer services to the U.S. government. And fourth and final, many companies are rapidly adopting AI programs and using algorithms to assist in important decision-making that affect their employees and customers, like hiring, lending, insurance, marketing, and content promotion. Taken together, these factors, the rise of internal company disputes over cyber and AI, expanding whistleblower protections, the prospects of significant awards, and the media's interest in these kinds of disputes due to the public's suspicion that companies are not doing enough to combat cybersecurity and AI to protect consumers to a likely significant increase in the number of data-related whistleblower complaints in the coming years. Here are some practical tips for addressing whistleblower complaints. To better prepare and respond to cyber and AI complaints, companies should consider adopting the following measures. First, provide training to management in cyber and AI operations. Second, review whistleblower policies and procedures to see where they, whether they adequately address issues that arise from cyber and AI complaints. Three, address complaints promptly. Because these concerns are often technical in nature, they sometimes languish. Fourth, take, taking concerns seriously. Five, consider involving counsel when facing when faced with complaints 
regarding alleged violations of the law in connection with cyber and AI. Bringing in outside counsel may help strengthen privilege claims over investigation. Six, the investigations team. It's important that the investigation team have the necessary expertise to evaluate allegations or has consultants or access to those who can assist. Seven, avoid retaliation. If the whistleblower is anonymous, it is advisable not to conduct an investigation to figure out their identity in order to limit the risk of retaliation. And finally, eight, providing context for allegations. Whistleblowers sometimes have an incomplete view of the company's risks. They may have valid concerns, but may lack a broader context for priorities of their organization. So these eight... uh, Eight suggestions really can go away in helping you craft proper policies and procedures to combat growing concerns in cybersecurity and AI. Next up, Tom, uh, what is the role of the board of directors in ESG? Jay, we've had a lot of discussion and I've written a lot about ESG. Indeed, I have uh, an ESG podcast now. And we found an article from Jurgita Ashley and Randy Vi Morrison uh, from Thompson Hine and the Society for Corporate Governance, respectively, uh, that was really a very good article thinking through and talking about the board's role. And she talked, or they talked rather, about board oversight, what the structure should be. They emphasize that no one size fits all. There are several potential alternatives. It could include a full board, an existing board committee, a new board committee, or multiple board committees. They have some great statistics about what uh, many companies are doing based upon uh, corporate board and uh, EY board survey of what corporations are currently doing. And they wind up with uh, some examples of oversight, both for full board and multiple existing companies uh, in a, a pretty useful chart. So it was, um, I thought, an excellent article. Uh, it also talked about reporting up to the board and assessing the board's competencies, uh, the topics and metrics to share with the board, the frequency of timing with the board. So a wide-ranging article. It's a a lengthy article, but a lot of detail. And I think uh, every compliance professional will garner quite a bit from it in terms of perhaps advising the board on what they need to do or uh, uh, actual reporting to the board. So uh, kudos to the authors and uh, it was uh, a very good article. Uh, Jay, our friend, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about some cybersecurity issues. What uh, caught your eye about uh, Mr. Kelly himself? Thanks, Tom. Uh, This is Matt writing in his blog, Radical Compliance. Uh, What caught my eyes is that Matt has returned to the issue of disclosing cybersecurity issues to investors because, frankly, so many companies still struggle with exactly what to say in securities filings. That issue came up recently at a securities enforcement forum last week, and we have some excellent insights to share with the class. First, let's note that the SEC does take enforcement action against companies for ham-fisted disclosure of breaches. We've seen two actions this year alone against First American Financial Corp. in July and recently against Pearson Corp. in August. Second, let's also remember that there are new rules or guidance from the SEC that are forthcoming. So publicly traded firms do need to think about cybersecurity breaches and ensuring responses that are happening within your enterprise and to what extent that activity needs to be disclosed to investors in a timely manner. 
Of course, it's tricky terrain, hence the session last week at the forum. The key issue as laid out by speakers in this session focused on cybersecurity is about building an effective process for disclosure, which means bridging the gap between IT and disclosure personnel. Indeed, while SEC guidance on cybersecurity uses the phrase disclosure controls and procedures to describe what a company must have in place. Typically, those relevant groups will include IT, legal, compliance, and finance teams, perhaps with investor relations and a few other functions tagging along. The main point is the company needs to have a structured process for the communication to happen. A process to do what exactly? The SEC compliance does have advice on what your disclosures process should do, quote, provide an appropriate method of of discerning the impact that such matters may have on the company and its business. Matt breaks down the sentence into its component parts. If a company wants to discern the impact of the breach, it will need several capabilities. For example, it will need some basic amount of forensic capability simply to understand what's happened. And second, the company will need an ability to put that damage into financial and legal context. To understand the financial context, at the very least, the company will need an ability to estimate disaster recovery and remediation costs. We also have the second part of the guidance, quote, a protocol to determine potential materiality of risks and incidents. Cybersecurity breaches can lead to a few type of material costs, such as lost revenues, remediation costs, regulatory investigations, and higher insurance premiums. Clearly, a lot of those materiality judgments will be subjective based on the knowledge and competency of senior executives. That's okay because it brings us back to the basic point that you need a process for clear communication. Cybersecurity breaches also bring up inside trader concerns, and that has been a sore point with the SE for years, that senior executives should not trade shares in advance of disclosing news about breaches. Companies and directors, officers, and other corporate insiders should be mindful of complying with the laws related to insider trading. Some compliance officers might say, hey, we don't have to deal, worry about insider trading because our company has a plan for insider stock sales on a fixed schedule. Matt can't help but recall warnings from former SEC chairman Jay Clayton, who said last year that these plans may not keep your senior executives out of trouble. Clayton's take was that the company's possession of material non-public information, like, say, a major cybersecurity lacks, excuse me, lapse, should be enough to trigger insider trading liability, even if the senior executives themselves don't know about it. A well-designed insider training policy should have controls in place to prevent senior execs and members of the board from trading once the company is in position, uh, possession of a material non-public information. Cybersecurity events are especially prone to fit Clayton's circumstances. The IT department might know about a breach but not disclose staff about it, or the disclosure staff might misunderstand the facts and mistakenly, mistakenly conclude the event may not be material. So yet again, we're back to the importance of clear communication among various parts of the business. Funny how that point keeps cropping up, isn't it? Tom, what is... Uh, Masquerabank that was fined $100 million by Department of Financial Services. You know, I'm glad that you actually tried to pronounce that. It relieved me (laughs) of the responsibility of trying to do so because 
uh, I would have butchered it. So I'm just going to say the UAE Bank. And a UAE bank was fined by the New York State Department of Financial Services $100 million for violating now-repealed Sudanese sanctions and for having an inadequate compliance program in place. Uh, according to the consent order between 05 and 09, the bank processed over 1,700 payments worth $4 billion through U.S. financial institutions, uh, which violated Sudanese or Sudan sanctions. Uh, which were uh, repealed in 2017. And Jay, really, the reason I selected this story is not only is it from our good colleague Jacqueline Jager over at Compliance Week, um, but it shows that in the financial world, financial institutions and banks, uh, you can be fined heavily for not for having inadequate compliance in place. So that's point one. But the other point is, I think, Jay, even today, many compliance professionals do not know who the New York State Department of Financial Services is and their role in regulating the banking industry because most banks of any size, both domestic and internationally, have some type of New York presence. They have uh, regulatory authority over them. And uh, they're a pretty tough regulator, and we've seen them uh, toss out some big fines uh, they also regulate insurance uh, companies in the state of New York, where many are, are domiciled as well. So uh, the uh, NYDFS has a very robust uh, regulatory and enforcement, or I should say enforcement, uh, team. And this is one of the uh, key cases that the, they have brought. Uh, this is not a uh, Fed case. This is not an OCC case, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency this is a, a state agency, or in the case of this, the Department of Financial Services in New York. So kudos to bringing this. And for uh, foreign banks who think, well, I get a pass from the Fed because we'll lobby uh, uh, State Department to State Department, you better watch out for the DFS. If you really are violating the law, they could turn around and bite you just as hard and as strongly as the, the Fed could do. So, Jay, uh, we conclude with uh, one additional article from Karsten Tams. What's he thinking about today? Uh, well, he's been thinking about uh, design thinking for a while, but in today's specific uh, article, which he publishes off his LinkedIn account, um, he's going to describe seven specific applications of design thinking that ethics and compliance practitioners can use in their work. Regardless of the size of the event or the complexity of the problem at hand, design thinking is a useful social technology for ethics and compliance practitioners. Integrating design thinking into your ENC and activities confers three benefits. First, speed. Design thinking provides a well-structured process template that enables timely progress towards milestones. Second, innovation. A human-centered and co-creative redesign process improves the chances of developing highly effective industry-leading practices and establishing the company as an innovation leader in ethics and compliance. And third, buy-in. The open, co-creative nature of a design thinking process promotes buy-in by critical stakeholders. There are many different ways to do design thinking right. There's no one-size-fits-all blueprint that works for all occasions. On the contrary, design thinking is best understood as a flexible concept. 
Effective design thinking experiences can happen either in person, relying on a conference room, pens and sticky notes, or they can unfold virtually, making use of various online collaboration tools. Design thinking experiences can range in length from bite-sized 20 minutes ideation during a Monday morning meeting to full-blown enterprise open innovation projects. Here are seven examples of how the ENC practitioner can design thinking, can use design thinking in their activities. First, the SECO's first 100 days. A newly appointed SECO can offer design thinking to implement the process that's both time-efficient and participatory, involving the ENC program's key stakeholders. Second, targeted redesign of a program element. ENC practitioners need to redesign specific elements in their programs, such as the company's code of conduct, website, training, or other anti-retaliation efforts. Three, comprehensive program overhaul during a monitorship. This is one of my favorites. At other times, companies need to comprehensively overhaul and upgrade their ENC program, for example, after they've experienced a significant breakdown and have been placed under monitorships. ENC Ambassadors Conference. Many companies regularly invite their network of compliance ambassadors embedded in their business units to an annual or biannual conference. Number five, ENC Strategy Retreats. SECOs can use the design sprint format to engage their team in structured strategies and process. Team meetings. Practicing design thinking does not always require a full-fledged design process. It can also be applied simply by making space for short design thinking exercise. And seven, design thinking as a way of work and life. These examples are by no means exhaustive. One of the most effective ways to practice design thinking is to infuse its principles and methods informally into your daily interactions with people. Practicing design thinking in our daily lives requires that we view others with a fundamental positive regard, recognizing that everyone brings their unique experience and creative capabilities to the ethics and compliance conversation. Effective design thinkers approach the social interaction with a dialogue posture prepared with a set of meaningful questions regarding their interlocutors' needs and aspirations. Practicing design thinking as a way of work also implies that conversation partners recognize each other as fundamentally equal, irrespective of their respective hierarchical positions. From a design thinking perspective, leadership is a process by which capabilities latently available within a group are effectively elicited and applied productively. Finally, Karsten offers six basic questions to ask to get yourself ready. The following questions can help in planning your next design thinking experience. Challenge. What type of problem are you trying to solve? Stakeholders. Who are the critical stakeholders for your project? Group size. How many people will you be looking to include? Time. How much of it can you allocate to the process? Location. Are you planning in person or virtual? And finally, budget. Do you have enough to make do with a shoestring budget or do you have a little money to spend? The best part of design thinking, it's easy to, 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 to apply, and based on the great advice from Car- Karsten, here are some keys to get it started. Tom, that is the end of our stories for this week. What are we looking at in terms of podcasts and events? So, Jay, lots to talk about. First of all, I recorded a couple of weeks ago and posted this week one of the most fascinating podcasts I've done. It's with Detective Ed Gillespie. He is the policeman poet 
of the Baltimore Police Department, and he uses poetry to help him deal with the, frankly, the stress and PTSD uh, that he has suffered as a police officer. Um, he uh, was spoken Kerrville, so I got the chance to interview him uh, live. And uh, midway through, it struck me that the poetry he writes sounded just like the war poets from World War One. And uh, I'm a big fan of the war poets. Uh, if you have uh, studied their work at all, you know it's very different than the literature from World War Two or even the Korean War or the, the Gulf Wars in uh, the 90s and the aughts, it is most closely allied with the Vietnam experience. So um, at any rate, a fascinating interview. Uh, we are running towards the end of uh, effing Argentina. And this week, uh, Greg Greenberg, in a not very well hidden autobiographical sketch, talked about his uh, aged mother losing her purse after a theater performance on Broadway in Schubert Alley, and the exasperation over that uh, is really funny. Um, this week on The Compliance Life, I'm continuing my exploration with Wendy Badger. Uh, Wendy had some really interesting thoughts, Jay, that sometimes, and, and this may be, uh, um, you may have experienced this, sometimes you have to change career ladders and maybe take a step down to, to be able to, to go up again. And she felt like she had done that at least once and maybe twice in her career where she took what was a, a really a, a step down, but it gave her an open path or a more open path uh, to go up the ladder, uh, in her case, to the CCO chair. I had a sponsored podcast series with Six Clicks. They're a GRC uh, product company. It was a fascinating exploration. And most importantly, Jay, or most proudly, I should say, next week I'm doing a five-part series on understanding Lyme disease. Um, I don't know if you knew any folks who got that uh, when you lived back in the Northeast, but uh, apparently it's much more prevalent in the Northeast than I ever really dreamed. Uh, the name, indeed, Lyme disease comes from the fact it was diagnosed in old Lyme, Connecticut for the first time. Um, I have Ben Lachlan, who's an epidemiologist, and his colleague, Scott Endicott. Scott's also an epidemiologist, and Scott suffers from Lyme disease. And so they walk us through uh, the origins and evolution, the diagnostic dilemmas, uh, treatment and innovation, uh, immunity, and, and really looking ahead. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, study of a disease that's not well understood, and if you suffer from it, not only will you probably be misdiagnosed, um, it's a lifelong disease. You're never rid of it, and you manage it going forward. So uh, that premieres next week, uh, 10 a.m. every day on my Greetings and Felicitations podcast, but it'll be available through the uh, Compliance Podcast Network and all uh, the usual sites. And uh, lastly, Jay, if uh, you still need the best compliance handbook, which, which what Matt Kelly has called the Compliance Bible, uh, you can check out my um, – interview on bestseller TV and or you can actually buy the book. So my preference is number two, but if you want to do number one and number two, I'm equally happy. So what uh, what do you have to first uh, closing, Jay? Well, I, I get to do the emails because I'm really good at that. If you'd like to get in touch with Tom Fox, who is the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And uh, myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, I can be reached at the initial J R O S E N at affiliatedmonitors.com. 
So uh, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us this week or this weekend. This has been This Week in FCPA, episode number 277, for the week ending November 12, 2021, the Immunized But Not Vaccinated edition. Uh, We hope you have a great weekend, and we look forward to speaking with you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, where Gwen looks at the international scourge of human trafficking, and more importantly, the response a corporation and compliance professional can make to help fight this scourge. Once again, Hidden Traffic, hosted by Gwen Hassan on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.